So hello, and thank you for inviting me to speak at your conference today. I'm sorry I can't be there with you in person. Um, but hopefully after this short film, we will have a live link up with some questions and answers. Um, and until then, if you sit back in your seats and uh, enjoy the short film, uh, then I'll begin. Okay, so uh, I'm Dr. Karen Lucas and I work at the Transport Studies Unit at Oxford University. And today I'm going to talk to you about the role of transport in the social exclusion of individuals who are already economically and socially disadvantaged in some way. And also how community transport and accessibility planning, which is something we've been doing in the UK for some time now, might help to address these issues. Now, as some of you might be aware, I've actually been researching these issues in a variety of contexts over about the last 15 years, including in Australia, although not Queensland, more in the Victoria and Melbourne context. Um, in particular, I'm interested in the role of transport in preventing people from participating in key activities such as work, learning, healthcare and so forth, and to find ways to enhance their uh, access to these services, either through improving the transport um, options or by bringing services to them um, through better land use planning, home delivery or virtual services indeed. But I don't believe that we can really understand this unless we think about the wider context in which people carry out their daily travel activities. Um, and so with this in mind, I've just a few background statistics here. Now, many of you will already be familiar with the wider context and rationale for trying to reduce people's unfettered car use. Um, there's a lot of policy concerns about climate change, about congestion, about uh, reduced economic development and also social inequities. And uh, we know that transport contributes to about 14.6 of Australia's uh, CO2 emissions. That's not including international aviation. Now, although that doesn't actually seem like a very large proportion of total contributions, we have to see this in the context of Australia's national per capita emissions, which show a, here a difference from high and low income nations on their national output. And you can see here that Australia is right up the top there, almost on a par with the US. So whilst transport isn't a large amount of total emissions, it is, road transport is one of the main sources and private vehicles one of the key contributors to this. Um, and private road vehicles now account for about 90% of urban passenger transport in, um, in Australia and 80% of households or one in two individuals have cars and use them for most trips. So I want to bear in mind that there is this ongoing growth in car ownership, car use and a reliance on that. Now, one of the things, I, I'll take a flagrant advert break here and introduce you to my new and latest book, which is an edited collection by a number of academics. Um, you can buy it in most good Amazon stores. Um, what uh, motivates people to drive? And this is what this book looks at. And obviously, we have these, uh, these things to do with better access to services. You have the freedom to choose to travel, independence, time constraints, cost and affordability, and so forth. Also, people's habits and laziness. And if you ask people on the street, they'll tell you that they need to drive. They need to drive because their towns and cities are designed around the car, that um, they have long distances to get to key activities. Populations tend to be, um, a, lot, a lot of populations in Australia particularly, located in the urban fringe where there are very poor facilities um, and not very good access to local amenities. And home and work locations are not co-located. And so people's lifestyles and working patterns rely on the car. But we have to remember that not everybody can drive. Um, and although 80% of Australians do have cars, 
inevitably this, inevitably this means that 20% of them do not. One in two can drive, that means one in two can't drive as well. And it's those people that I'm particularly interested in. And they're the, they tend to be the very p people that um, policy tries to uh, control for, public policy tries to look after. Um, older people, children, indigenous population groups, ethnic minorities and so forth. Um, but nevertheless, Australian transport policy overwhelmingly still concentrates on proving the transport, improving the transport system for those who are already transport rich um, and largely overlooking the, the unmet needs of the transport poor. Um, and this can lead to um, a lot of other problems. We had a, a report in the UK some time ago now, in 2003, and this report showed that in, in the UK context, lack of transport was reducing people's ability to take up employment. Um, it was uh, making it difficult for people to access healthy, affordable food. Uh, it was making it older people become isolated in their own home, increasing youth antisocial behaviour, preventing access to after school, after primary school education, um, and that um, whole communities became severed from activities. Okay. Now again, some more a bit of more internal advertising. Two reports that I did some while ago. Um, looking at what exactly the problem was that people were saying that, that was happening to them, why they couldn't drive. Um, and we're looking here at things that, in, although um, it, this obviously differs in different national contexts, across the board, whether in the UK, whether in Australia, America or South Africa, people were saying that they lack local facilities, essential facilities in their areas, and therefore they have to make relatively long journey distances in order to be able to get to those facilities. In the Australian context, of course, you have even more dispersed and small um, population settlements and very poor access outside of the very main city centres to public transport. There's also issues around the timing and frequencies of existing services. I know that some communities in Australia don't have more than one or two buses a week, but even where there are um, regular services, they quite often don't run very well early in the morning or late at night. People were talking about poor access, particularly for disabled people, people with physical and mental disabilities, poor access to the public transport infrastructure. Um, but also the cost of fares relative to driving can be very expensive. Some people who experience social and economic disadvantage would prefer not to travel outside of their own areas, particularly this is the case with older people and also to a certain degree younger children where it's uh, appropriate to try and provide access, uh, access to, to childcare and so forth in the local area. And then there's also issues of personal safety. So, bearing in mind that there are enormous differences between the UK and um, Australia, the Australian context. I'm going to talk a little bit about accessibility planning, um, but also the fact that this can't just be adopted straight from the UK process into the Australian context, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But theoretically, um, at least, accessibility planning has been shown um, to be one way of trying to bring into balance better these economic, social and environmental considerations. And the method is to, intended to work very much at the local level, working with communities, particularly transport disadvantaged communities, and um, to bring together a wide constituency of stakeholders to discuss these issues. 
Now, essentially, accessibility planning is about people first. It's about where people, specific people with groups uh, that have got disadvantage already within an area, where they are and where they want to get to. Where are the activities that those people need to access? Then do they need to get uh, transport to take them there? Is that about providing them with walking facilities or is it about providing them with something that is a, a local bus link or should it be a train link because it's much further away um, or should there be some sort of car sharing schemes or whatever? Um, or, alternatively, can those facilities be provided within their local area, either through some sort of peripatetic services, home deliveries, or even indeed by bringing doctor's services or library services into the community itself. Okay. And, ultimately, the process should be about planning the transport for people to um, fit fit their needs. So you're not only looking at transport, is it available, you're also looking at whether it's suitable, whether it's affordable, whether it's reliable, whether it is safe. Um, and also asking, well, is it really transport that is the issue or is it where the houses are locating, re re located relative to the services and so forth and working with other stakeholders. Ultimately, it's a process of dialogue. It should be based on evidence. It should be cross-sectoral. It needs a, a multiplicity of agencies to deliver this agenda and it definitely needs community involvement. And in practice, you should be bringing together transport delivery with local site and service delivery and looking at not only opportunities and, and openings of new opportunities, but also what happens when you have closures of activities as well and whether that changes people's accessibility. Now, we've used uh, GIS mapping quite a lot in our studies, and we found it to be quite helpful in pinpointing places where um, people are unable to get to. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't suggest that, uh, that GIS mapping is the be-all and end-all. Some of the local transport authorities in the UK uh, produced beautiful maps, but then did very little about them afterwards. And so it is this process of identifying where there are people in need, and often maps can help to promote dialogue with key stakeholders who haven't previously thought about access to their services before, because they see that as something that is the responsibility of transport sector to get people to places, whilst the transport sector expects for hospitals, GPs to locate their services in places where people can get to and there uh, lies the big divide. So what you're trying to do is raise the profile of the problem with those key stakeholders. You're trying to develop integrated policy programs so that health deliverers understand that access to their services or equally tertiary education providers, that access to their services is important for them and that they can enter into a process of dialogue with the transport providers to see how best to deliver joined up solutions to this. And also a very important point is to monitor and evaluate effectiveness against targets and goals that make sense to those other sectors. So it's not just about getting bums on seats in terms of buses, it's also about counting whether that reduces missed health appointments, whether that means that there are less uh, dropouts from, from colleges and so forth. It's important to articulate success in the language of these other service delivery providers. Okay, so that's me just about done and I have some conclusions to make here. And what I would say to you, um, having had quite a lot of uh, involvement in different research projects around the world looking at this concept of social exclusion is that, yes, transport-related social exclusion is a useful concept 
and it's helpful for exposing the social consequences of what happens when transport isn't there. But practical delivery of a more socially inclusive transport and land use system is a highly context-specific agenda. It's important to recognise the very big differences between, for example, the UK and Queensland, um, and that this will often dictate the types of policies and programmes that will be practicable and successful. Um, obviously, in the Australian context, people are travelling much further journey distances. They have much lower density lifestyles. It's much more difficult to provide public transport options. And therefore, it's likely that community, uh, community transport facilities will actually provide a better solution for them. Um, they may be... Um, there may, this may be the case that in actual fact that community and voluntary transport has a greater overall role to play, but all too often this is seen as the cheaper option, and that's not true. If it's going to be a proper service, it needs to be provided in the same way as a public transport service would be provided within um, major urban areas. It has to have properly timed services, they have to be coordinated with activities, there have to be proper windows of op opportunity for people to carry out their activities at the destination end and get back again. And the fares have to be reasonable, and there needs to be proper scheduling. So it's not cheap to do it properly. Um, I think that there's a big potential for uh, community and voluntary services to be extended to more population groups, if not all population groups, um, in the situation of Queensland. I don't think it should be restricted to older people and, and people with disabilities, um, but there needs to be more joined-up delivery between the different service agencies so that instead of seeing this as providing single providers of each of these transports, such as social services or health or whatever, that should be a joined-up service and run like a public transport network. Um, the other thing is, is that community trans tra transport um, officers can act as advocates for communities, and this is another good way, but they may well need skills and training in order to do that effectively. The other thing is, it's not just a transport problem. Social inclusion, social exclusion is a multifaceted problem and it needs to be treated in that joined up way. Transport can't work on its own, it has to work with the other delivery providers. It must be integrated with social policy, the location of hospitals, colleges, housing and so forth. Um, social equity and climate change agendas need to be joined up more within transport. So accessibility planning has got one role to play and community transport another. It will connect people to activities. It is a useful start, but it's not a means to an end. And it needs substantial and continuous capital investment and revenue support if it's going to work effectively. So I'd like to thank you very much indeed for listening to my presentation. And um, I'd be happy to take any questions and answers as they come.